0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 414. And the quote of the day is, we are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that will never leave. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Thought leaders. Inspiration, inspiration education and, education, and motivation for drumming and, for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond what's going on guys and girls Nick Rafini here I hope you're doing well it is Friday or this episode is coming out on Friday so as far as I'm concerned is Friday I don't care what day of the week you're listening to this is Friday <laughs> anyway I don't know I'm uh, I'm in a good mood which is good the sun is shining the birds are chirping and uh Omar, the studio cat, is passed out next to me. Anyway, uh, this is a great conversation that I think you may want to really pay attention, maybe even take some notes and don't be distracted while you're listening to this. This is with Jeff Goins. Jeff is a writer. I have read both of his books. One is The Art of Work. And that is all about discovering what type of work you were meant to do, finding your true calling. And the other one is called Real Artists Don't Starve, which is demystifying or debunking, I should say, the idea that if you want to be an artist, then you have to be broke and you have to starve. And he has, this book talks about hundreds of different artists who are thriving, musicians, writers, painters, artists of all sorts. And we really get deep into that topic about the lies that we tell ourselves and what we choose to believe and what we don't believe and putting in the work and discovering what you love to do and chasing after that instead of settling for doing something that you don't enjoy doing. So a really powerful episode. And I wanted to have him on here because like I said, I read both of those books. I read, um, I read Real Artists Don't Starve. I read that probably almost three times, so probably two and a half times and a very powerful writing. So I wanted to bring him on here because I think that his message is very important and it definitely translates. He is a professional writer, but it totally translates into drumming or any other art that you want to pursue or any other work that you want to pursue in general. So I hope that you enjoy this. I hope you get a lot out of it. And I know I I know that you will. So dig in. To this conversation with Jeff Goins.
1: Jeff, how are you? Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Nick, good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. I I, I was telling you off air. I've read um, the art of work, and I also read Real Artists Don't Starve. And I want to I want to really unpack those and unpack some of those ideas. And for everyone listening, the reason why I wanted to bring you on is because we frequently talk about on the podcast the idea of how to make a career out of out of the your passion. How can you make or maybe not necessarily a career, but how can you make money playing? How can you how can you actually take this thing that you love and not have to do it, you know, uh either either starve to death doing it or do it, you know, when you have very little limited time when you're not working or or doing all these other things. I had Chase Jarvis on. We talked a lot about making a career out of your a life out of your passion. And so bringing you on well, he's such a, yeah, he's, he's a great, uh, great example of that, and what he's done has, uh, is definitely amazing. Um, so I wanted to bring you on to, to talk about those ideas, but first, what was the catalyst for you to start going down this road? Because I think that I, – I, I said the same thing to Chase, actually. I said, you know, if there's a surefire way not to make any money, it's being a drummer. If there's another way, it would be a photographer, and for you, I would say if there's another <laughs> way, it's, it's being a writer. Right. So like, yeah, one, no, no, none of these are are known as like these super lucrative careers. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, I think is due to uh, a mythology around art that was born in the uh, 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whole idea of the starving artist is a story that we've told ourselves culturally for about 150 Years and it's not always been true. You know, in the Renaissance, artists were some of the wealthiest people uh, Mm -hmm. in their cultures. So I I think that's helpful to understand. Uh, Of course, I didn't know that starting out as a writer. I heard the same things that uh, most of us here. And actually, started out as a musician. So played guitar in high school and college, and graduated college and toured with a band for a year, and then quit the band and moved to Nashville, which is not typically the order in which those things happen. Yeah. So uh, my first band was a drummerless band in high school uh, called Decaf. And we the had worst two- kind of band ever. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it is the worst. Yeah, absolutely. But, no, I'm just kidding. But I think you would agree with this. It's better to have no drummer than it is to have a bad drummer. 100%. Yeah. yeah because like, dude, I, I will, <laughs> I'll keep the beat, you know, versus right. having somebody keep the wrong beat. And we only had bad drummers that were available in the small farming community in Northern Illinois. Uh, where I grew up. And so we just, we went out with two guitars and a bass and we called ourselves decaf because we thought, you know, like percussionless music, like this is what it would probably, you know, we would be like decaffeinated coffee. I like it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we it's wrote we a really creative bad. name.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we we Wait wrote for we my bad. book that's coming out. It's a, decau- <laughs> it's a It's a decaffeinated coffee table book.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a coffee table book about coffee tables.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, I've always always loved the arts I used to you know make my own comic books in middle school and mm-hmm. uh, I've always loved words I mean all these things always fit together I liked uh, communicating and creating and I liked uh, I acted in plays and directed plays and did all the things that you you know would like get beat up for in high school um, right. and you know played music and you know s- sang in the choir and, and acted in plays and, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, got to college and I realized I really liked writing, uh, but also like playing music and I, you know, any artist who's getting into their art typically is doing it cause they love it. And, um, they're thinking, well, I'm going to do this now and I don't know what I'll do later. And I remember touring with the band and we didn't have any money. I think I made like eight grand that year and we would stay in people's homes and they would feed us. And this is how we kept expenses so low. And um, I remember lots of well-meaning people saying, it's great that you're doing this now while you're young, while you still can, because right. when you get older, like, this isn't a viable career. Right, right. And nobody was trying to destroy my dream, right? Right. It's just like – like It's you common, said, the lie. Common knowledge. The yeah, lie that we tell it's, ourselves. Right. It's so-called common knowledge, and I believed it. And so I toured the, you know, with the band for a year, then I moved to Nashville to chase a girl, uh, I ended up marrying her. And, uh, so it worked out and I, I, <laughs> you know, got idea. into the very lucrative field of telemarketing for like seven months and hated that and ended up going and working in a nonprofit and becoming the marketing director there. And, um, this works for a while, I think. Uh, meaning it's it works for a while to sort of suppress your dream, set aside your passion and go do the smart, logical thing. And you mm-hmm. can do that for five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 or 20. But at a certain point, you start to feel the itch and you realize this is not what I, what I signed up for. This is not what I feel like I'm made for. And so at a certain point, I think it comes back to you, this thing that you want to do, that you feel like you're supposed to do. And that's what happened uh, with me is I didn't know what it was. I just knew that where I was was not working. And I think of it as a, as an itch on your back, you know, and you can't quite scratch it. Sometimes my wife says, scratch my back. And I go, okay, here, no, 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 Okay. There. Uh, <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through this journey, that's what happens. It begins with uh, awareness, with this sense like maybe what I'm doing, it's not it's not all it's not all that there is for me to do. Maybe as Jack Nicholson said in, in that one movie, maybe, uh, maybe this is as good as it gets, and there's something deeply unsatisfying about that. And you realize no, there's mm. more. And I've got to find it. And that's how the journey began for me is I said, uh, I'm good at this. People are congratulating me for it. I'm a good marketing director. I'm getting paid well. Um, uh, I get a raise every year. I get promoted every once in a while. It is very unlikely that I will get fired for this. And yet, I just, it's not it. There's something more. And I have a decision. Will I keep moving in that direction or will I settle? And I decided to keep moving.
0: One question I have for you is, and I'm, because I've gone through this before and I've had conversations with other people about it before, where you're in this situation that you have, you have a great job, you know, you're married, family, everything's great and you're not happy. And is it, do you sort of get that feeling like, why is this, why am I not happy with this? Like, it's yeah, yeah, like everything's great. Like what's wrong with me? Why, why is this not, why is this not enough? I felt incredibly guilty.
1: Yeah you know, I worked for a, um, an international, uh, uh, development organization, a Christian mission organization. We were doing ministry, right? So a mm-hmm. lot of people were there cause they felt like God had called them there. Right. And, and I, and I felt that way. And so like all of a sudden <laughs> I had a rear criticize me for this the other day. You know, I basically walking away from philanthropic, um, nonprofit work to go start a business, you know, right. well, that's eventually what it, it, it became like, I'm going to go write and and teach these online courses and and get paid to do this thing that I, I love instead of like, you know, serving poor people all over the world. That's That was mm-hmm. the contrast. Right. So I felt incredibly guilty about it. And
0: plus it's you're actually, seeing all these people who are in these horrible situations and you're yes, like, you know, right. my life is pretty good. Why can't I be okay
1: with this? Right. And, uh, and I think that's healthy. I think that it's okay to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. I, I put this in the art of work because it was a big it was a big question for me. Why you, why can't you be content with a good thing? And, and so in 2012, I had one of the most incredible years of my life. Um, my wife and I had our first child. Our son was, was born that year. I had just started this business. We were both working full-time jobs and and the business was writing books. And then I I was starting to teach online courses, which was becoming kind of a new lucrative field. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, the goal was for me to replace her income working at a record label here in Nashville, so that she could stay home and raise our son for a few years, um, and I would just have my full time job at the nonprofit, and I'd have this other like writing gig, and hopefully I could make enough money to help us, you know, cover the gap that was going to be created when she left her job. That was the mm-hmm. hope, and we we didn't think it was going to work, and I just you know worked as hard as I could to make it happen, and by the end of the year I replaced her income. I've replaced my income and then we went on to triple our household income with, you know, this new, new crazy writing thing. That's insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, I hear that. I, you were, you did another interview that I listened to that you had talked about this. Yeah. So it obviously was a surprise, not part of the plan. In fact, Mm -hmm.
1: Nick, I wrote down that year, a list of 10 year goals and the goals were like, um, uh, quit my job, uh, become a, a, you know, uh, published author uh well respected speaker and consultant um replace my wife's income so that she can stay home um you know all these things a list of things and, and I'd written this down as part of some like coaching program that I'd gone through and I, this was actually the previous year, and within about eighteen months, I had accomplished every single one of those ten year goals and exceeded many of them and so you know uh, there were other seasons in my life where I didn't do that. You know, I set a goal and three years later I still haven't accomplished it. Right. But I, I was in one of these weird, rare moments where everything that I ever thought I was going to do, I had surpassed. Um,
0: and Can you so, talk about some of the tactical stuff there? Like how I did it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure that um, there's plenty of people that are listening that are like, I play drums. Yeah. I have a sure. full-time job. Right. I don't want my full-time job. I want to play drums. Yeah. What What are some things that that maybe I could start doing. And it's not, because I think where the, where what happens is, you know, there's people who have, uh, who have done these successful things like you have, and we, and people start talking about them. And it's like, I did this, uh, you know, and 16, you know, 18 months later, I had this and it's like, okay, well, if I want to do that, what do I have to do tomorrow morning?
1: Yep. It's hard to not sound like a cliche saying these things, because you've probably Mm -hmm. heard these things before. Um, But the first thing that I had to do is change my mind. And part of it was actually believing what successful people had told me worked for them would work for me. Like that was a big Mm. one because I'm a smart guy and I'm like, oh, like I can't do that. You know, like that's marketing. I just want to make my art, man. And and realizing, wait, what I'm doing isn't working. So maybe I don't know more than these people who are more successful than me. Right. And maybe, maybe I should at least try what they say before I dismiss it. Mm -hmm. before I think I'm so smart. My friend Tim Grawl has a really good method for this. instead of doing what most people do, which is when you're stuck in going around and asking 100 people for advice who may or may not be qualified to give you advice, he finds the one expert and he does everything that they tell him to do. And it could be a phone call or it could be a podcast. Like find one person whom you respect and just do everything that they've done or talked about or told you to do. And um, and it turns out that this is a much better way to succeed than sort of cherry picking the things that you like to hear and hodgepodging it into something that looks sort of like a roadmap. Right. If I want I want to be Nick. I am best off studying everything that Nick has done and then copying it without trying to think about it, without trying to without thinking that I'm smarter than Nick and just do everything that he's done to get to where he is. And then if it doesn't work for me, I'll try some I'll try somebody else's path. I'll try somebody else's roadmap. Mm-hmm. And so I began to do this. I began to just listen to advice. One person was very instrumental in my journey was a guy named Michael Hyatt, who had just started blogging and he was writing about publishing. And he said, You need a platform. I said, okay, I'm gonna start a platform. Uh and and so I changed my mind by going I don't know more than these people. I'm just going to do whatever they tell me to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't like meeting with these people, I was reading their blogs, uh, reading their books, just applying the process. And um I started calling myself a writer. Uh Stephen Pressfield says if you want to uh, be a professional writer, you have to first turn pro in your head. And and what oh, he means like by that. that is you have, to, you have to think like a professional. You have to start calling yourself a writer if you want to be a writer. Being a writer is not like, you know, being a lawyer where you actually have to get a degree, you know, in this thing Mm -hmm. or a certificate. You just like have to write, you know, and and I couldn't get a clear definition of what makes a real writer. Is it a book? Is it multiple books? Is it a bestseller? Uh, It turns out a writer is somebody who writes, you know, on a semi-professional basis. And I was doing that. And -hmm. so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to call myself a writer. And what that forced me to do was own it. I couldn't hide behind aspiring. Like if, if you play drums every day, you're a drummer. Doesn't mean that, you know, you're touring with the Red Hot Chili Peppers or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, just means that that's your job title in this particular setting where you're trying to get more drumming gigs. You better call yourself a drummer, not a, um, you know, waiter who drums sometimes. Right. They don't want to hire a waiter. Right. They don't want to sign a waiter. They want a drummer. So you have to own that. I had to own that. And it was interesting to me how much more seriously i began to take this thing that was just a hobby and so tactically what i did was i started blogging this worked for me i started blogging every single day i did this for an entire year and the point of that was for me to show up and practice in public which is one of the things i talk about in real artists don't starve mm-hmm. um do your work but do it in a way where once you get good at it people can notice you so maybe that's being a street performer for me. It was blogging. Uh, maybe it's having a you know podcast or you know releasing you know uh, your music you know on Spotify or, or whatever. But putting your art out there in a way where um, it's discoverable, and so it's practice, but it's also marketing. Mm-hmm. And people can watch you gradually get better and better and follow along uh, for the journey. So my blog was that. I wrote every day for a year, first for the practice and then second for the exposure. Mm-hmm. And over what time, were you I writing got, about? I was talking about what I was learning as, as a writer. I started writing about marketing, which is where I came from. Then I wrote about leadership and business. And then I started writing about here's what I'm learning as a writer. And here are the things that I'm learning about publishing and writing and getting my uh, ideas out there. Um, so it was very meta, you know, I was a writer writing about writing, just sharing my process and people began to follow along. And first it was, you know, just writers. And then it was, you know, some publishers who uh, were looking for, you know, writers who were growing audiences and I was growing my audience. And, um,
0: I, I think just, that just yeah. to, just to interject for one second, I think that the, the misconception is that when you, you know, someone like you, or even with me, with the podcast, when people, when people view it from the outside, they're like, oh, I can never compete with that. And what people don't realize is like the first couple of episodes or a lot of the episodes that I released, like, no one listened to it. And it was horrible. Right. And and to to that point, is I started a YouTube channel about things non drumming related. And like no one watches it yet. You yeah. know, it gets it gets 20 views on each video or something like that. And so I think that. I think that we don't realize that like, and even me, like I already, I have a big audience with drumming and you would think that like, oh, I have these YouTube videos. Everyone, it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta reprove yourself again. Yeah. You always have to pay your dues. And I think it's the most humbling thing in the world to switch
1: mediums. Uh, same thing with me. I have a large blogging audience and I'm trying to get more into podcasting because I love the medium Mm -hmm. and, um, And I'm just not that good at it yet. I'm getting better. I'm trying experiments and being honest about what I'm learning. I'm trying to bring what I feel like are my skills and my uniquenesses to it. But it's different. It's a different Mm -hmm. medium. There are different rules. And so you've got just because you are a good communicator in one medium doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate to another one. I mean, just video has been hard for me. Harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, right. It's so interesting that our ego lies to us with that. But I mean, you just have to see, like, you know, another football or basketball player go play baseball to go, oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Just because you're a really talented athlete doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to automatically transfer to a different, um, a different craft. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote every day. I, um, networked I met with lots of other people networking people don't like that um, networking is just scaled generosity uh, so all that all networking is is it is um, helping people I believe it's not uh, it's not what you know or who you know but it's who you help mm-hmm. and so uh, that's what I did you know networking I made I is, made a lot of is
0: stuff the scaled generosity I love that I've never heard yeah. that before I think that's... I just that. I yeah. love that sorry I mean, go
1: ahead it's networking is going to a party and handing out your business card. Very ineffective. Right. But building a network is connecting people who need each other with one another, and that is very very effective. And the people who helped me 6 7 years ago when I was just getting started are still my friends today because that's what mm-hmm. happens when you
0: build build a network. Right. Yeah, so you're writing every so you're writing, that's, every, that's so you're uh-huh. writing every day uh-huh. and how do you start how does that turn like if 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 I'm playing drums every day, putting it online, how does that turn into dollars in my pocket? Well, it doesn't at
1: first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It turns into it. Hopefully it turns into attention. And I was just talking with a group of writers and they said, I have the blog. I have the platform. I have the thing. How do I get people to notice it? I go, you don't. That's not how this works. You don't like build something and put it on a shelf and stand in front of the shelf and wait for people to see the thing on the shelf. What you do, Nick, is... You realize some people are already watching you. Some people are already looking at you. Uh, Are you married, Nick? I am. So when you were getting ready to get married, at some point, you made a list of everybody that you wanted at your wedding. Mm -hmm. Right? Right? And for most people, that list ends up being longer than they thought it would be or they wanted it to be. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Well, uh, it's got to be a hundred people from my family and a hundred people from their family. And, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, we all, we both know like 800 people. What are we going to do here? Right. Um, And that's what happens, right? People go, "Oh, oh, I don't have an audience. I bet you have at least 500 friends on Facebook. I bet you could sit down for an hour and think of everybody that you know that you would want at your funeral. And you'd come up with a list of at least 75 to 100 to 150 people. So this is your audience. Nobody starts from Nothing. No man is an island. You've got people paying attention to you. So it begins with that, with your network. You already have a network. So when you're starting out, the best thing that you can do, and no, not everybody that you went to grade school with is going to care that you're into drumming now or whatever, um, or that you've got a blog or a website, but some will. And some of those people will surprise you. And so it begins with doing the work, committing to the process, not expecting anyone to pay attention to it then finding the people that are paying attention to you, and then begin connecting them to the work. And then from there, rem- remember, you're building a network, you're scaling generosity. Uh, so you're going to help those people in some way, maybe it's just providing free content or music or entertainment or something. Uh, and then from there, it can grow. And once you have attention, it's just a question of, how can i turn this into dollars and uh, when i was working on real artists don't starve i talked to so many what i call thriving artists people who are making a living off of their creativity and they're making great livings they're not super famous you know i'm not talking about the taylor swifts of the world that's great too uh, but they're just everyday ordinary people most of them independent musicians artists uh, and writers and they have just found a way to make it work and one guy was an improv actor and he was really struggling and um, just couldn't make it work. And he realized that corporations would pay him a lot of money to come in and teach improv, which he was doing for like, you know, 20 bucks a ticket, you know, a few times a right. month and making, he'd run out the theater and he wouldn't even be able to pay for the, the theater. And he realized corporations would pay him a lot more money to do the same work that he was doing for pennies for thousands of dollars a gig. And he realized that for him, all he really wanted to do was say, here are the things that I'm good at. Which of these will you pay me for? And I think one of the challenging disciplines of being a thriving artist is to be open to the ways that you get paid or not necessarily the ways that you might expect. Mm. Uh, I, I uh, recently had the uh, privilege of reconnecting with a band that I listened to. And I interviewed them on my podcast, the lead singer of, of a punk band called MXPX. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was interesting to hear this band who'd been making music for 26 years. Talk about how, you know, playing stadiums with 80,000 people and selling, you know, 2.5 million records. This was not, these were not the moments when they made their most money. The moments when they made their most money is when they, you know, did a crowdfunding project with their fans, or they bought out this theater over there and sold tickets directly to the fans and and figured out, okay, this is how, this is how you actually make money as as Mm -hmm. an artist. And a lot of people, and you probably know this, Nick, a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to show up and make their art and let other people take care of the business. And other people will, and they'll keep 80% of the profits. So- One of the things you have to be willing to acknowledge is you have more than one skill. You're creating a portfolio and that can create multiple diverse streams of income provided you're willing to do what uh, this actor Kevin did is go, these are all the things that I'm good at. Which of these will you pay me for? And that's what I did. I said, I like writing. I like writing books. I like helping people. I like teaching. I like speaking. um, I like coaching. There's all these different things that I do where I kind of feel like I'm still doing my core thing, which is communicating an idea in a creative and engaging way and some of those pay better than others but i like doing all of them
0: right makes sense what about what about the people who who would say yeah it's, it's easy for you jeff you're a marketing guy you were the director of marketing for a company you know how to do all of this stuff what about i mean how i'm sure that you've run across artists who are either thriving artists and and figured this out or starving artists who are either reluctant or, or don't know what they're doing with that aspect of it? How do you suggest or how have you seen that people learned how to do it? I agree with that.
1: I think the marketing part is easier for me than for somebody who didn't spend seven years at a nonprofit uh, doing marketing. Now, understand that uh, I didn't know anything about marketing before I, I got that job and I was required to learn uh, marketing because that was the position. And so mm-hmm. I figured it out. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe you're an accountant and, uh, this is something that I've been horrible at. Right. And, and so, uh, I was good at the marketing. I understood that I was really bad at the finances. So one year, you know, we had a $50,000 tax bill for the first quarter and I had $10,000 in my bank account and we had done this, this thing with a book promotion that had gone completely belly up. And I was hundred thousand dollars in the hole, uh, and I remember. Yeah, this is two thousand fifteen. I remember at the end of two thousand fourteen, telling my wife, "Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this, and and at worst, you know, like we'll it, it'll be a seventy thousand dollar loss, um, and it could be a two hundred fifty thousand dollar gain, and and we can afford to do this. What do you think?" And I I thought I had done you know best uh, and worst case scenarios. I had not. Turns out, the worst case scenario can always be a little bit worse than you expect. So
0: uh,
1: the finance part of it has been very challenging for me. Mm-hmm. So the point, Nick, is not is it easier or harder. The point is we all have skills based on our life experience that we get to bring to the table and lean into those, use those, own those, and and don't don't think that your path has to look like somebody else's path because. I believe that everything that's happened to you has prepared you for what's to come, whether in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Your life experience is not just an accident. Now, at the same time, you don't have to stay stuck in this feeling of being, you know, well, this is what I've done my whole life and feeling guilty as I did. You can realize that all of this has prepared you for the thing to come. And I never closed that loop before talking about working at this nonprofit and feeling guilty about it. But – All that stuff had happened in 2012, and I went to a friend who was a mentor of mine, you know, twice my age, kind of a a father figure, and I said, "Um, what should I do here? This thing that I never expected to happen has happened. Do I quit my job and, and chase the money? That seems greedy. Why can I not be content with where I am? Like, what should I do? And he said, the things that have happened to you are rare. He said, I don't think anybody saw them coming. He said, I know you, and I didn't see this coming. He said, you need to consider the possibility that not doing this um, would be a big mistake. He said, "He said you need to consider that this might be your calling and that not doing this could be like, an, you know, you're worried about leaving the ministry world where you felt called by God to go do this. What if not doing this would be disobeying your calling? And I thought, oh, wow. I, I, I hadn't considered that, you know, that like mm-hmm. this may be the next step in, you know, my process of becoming who I'm supposed to be. Now, not everybody thinks that, that that way and that's fine, but for me this was this was more than just a job. It was more than just making ends meet. It was what if I'm supposed to do this What's well, part of my purpose, you know, why I'm here. Um, and what if this is just the next step in the journey and the worst place to be when you're thinking about making this kind of transition is comfortable. Because if you're in a job that you hate, it's pretty obvious what needs to happen there. You've gotta move, you've gotta do something, you've gotta at least get another job that you don't hate. But if you're in a pretty good job, as I was, that pays you pretty well and you're doing okay, it's easy to do what most people do, which is settle and go, this is fine. You know, I have a fine life, I have a good thing going. And I don't want that. I've always wanted great. I've always wanted amazing. I've always wanted something that, um, is exciting and thrilling. And obviously, you know, life is life and there are doldrums and times of boredom and difficult seasons, but I didn't want to feel like I was settling. And so it was very important for me to keep moving. And even in a good place, that wasn't good enough. I wanted, I wanted great. And I knew that if I stayed there, I would have been settling.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And nothing like being on your deathbed saying i should have done this or i wish i would have wouldn't have stayed at that job or or whatever it is so right. and i could I have-, have done just a little bit more yeah that man that scares me <laughs> It's one thing to talk about how great Dream Symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about Dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these Symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding Symbol at a low price, check out DreamSymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at DreamSymbols.com. I have a two prong question for you. So okay. one, me. <laughs> uh, one is if you have, if you have all these things that you want to do, right, whether, whether it's you're a drummer or whether you're a writer or something like that. And it's like, you know, I want to write, I, wanna, I want to, I want to, I want to be practicing my craft. I want to be a speaker. I want to be a consultant. I want to have courses. I want to do this thing. I want to do that thing. Uh, the one question is how do you, how do you, sort of prioritize which ones come first and how do you start doing those things? And on the flip side of that, what? Or how do you figure out what you're good at in the first place to know whether it's worth pursuing this thing or not? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a really I mean, heavy loaded yeah, question. Yeah.
1: Sure. Uh, I think all advice is autobiography. So uh, understand that all I'm ever saying is here's what has worked for me and, you know, try it out. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't work, try something else. Um, the only way that I know how to see if I'm good at something is to do it. And um, and, if, and if I'm not good at it uh, or not excited about it, then that's going to become apparent pretty quickly. And I think it's okay to do something that you're bad at, but that you love doing because over time, you'll get better at it if you really love doing it. That's how I was with the podcast. First few episodes were horrible. Next few after that were, you know, a little bit better. And I just enjoyed it. You know, I thought, you Mm know, I'm going to do this because I love doing this. And and it's it's important for me to keep showing up. And I don't have any expectations about how big this will be. People that listen to it really seem to enjoy it. So I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I mentioned, you mentioned earlier that, you know, start out really bad. And those first uh, several, uh, you know, dozen (laughs) blog posts were horrible. I was writing a blog post every day. I tried to be Seth Godin for a while and Stephen Pressfield and all these authors and writers that I admired and eventually found a way to be myself. And in Real Artists Don't Starve, I talk about how this is a necessary part of becoming great at anything is you have to steal right? The, the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, actor Michael Caine says, you have to steal, you have to steal everything you see, but if you're going to steal, you should steal from the best. And Austin Kleon has written a great book about this called steal like an artist. And it's just book. this, yeah, it's just this idea that creativity is not about making something out of nothing. It's about curating all your, all the work of your favorite influences into something that you hodgepodge together. And at some point, if you've done your work well, it begins to look original. Now you know, right? Like you know, okay, like this is, you know, uh, this this is from like you know, I learned this from a Led Zeppelin song, right? And mm-hmm. I saw, uh, you know, I saw Maroon Five uh, do this. Dave Grohl does this, you know, and you're and and you're just copying your favorite uh, creators, but you're taking a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. And as you begin to put it together, it looks like something new. And it begins to take on a life and style of its own. And so eventually what emerges is your style. And the only way that I know how to find that. And and style is just another way of saying, this is the way that I do it, and it works. Mm -hmm. Right? Most people do what works. So um, try a bunch of different things. Uh, The historian Will Durant says, nothing is new except arrangement. So I like thinking of creativity as rearranging all the same source material we have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a musician trying to write a song and you're sitting down going, what, what is this going to sound like? Theor- 100%. Same access to all the other music that every other musician doing the same thing right now, sitting down to write, you know, like you have the same access to all that music, right? So it's the same source material. Uh, but what you do with that, how you rearrange and remix that, um, it is the work. It is the work of, of making something original, not creating something out of nothing, but of pulling this influence from there and there and there and, and moving those around enough that it begins to look original. Again, the work is, it is not just rearranging it, but it does begin to take on a life of its own. And in the world of writing, you know, lots of writers do this where they literally copy the words of their favorite books. Uh, they write them down word by word to try to get that feeling Like, what is it like to write like that? How did F. Scott Fitzgerald write The Great Gatsby? Uh, Many authors have have copied that word by word because it's like you're doing what the masters have done. And and that's that's a form of apprenticeship that we can all sort of take ourselves through. So uh, do lots of things. See what resonates. Learn from each of those. And then you'll just find that, oh, this works. I really like doing it this way. I didn't know that I would be good at this. And um, in the art of work, there's this idea of an accidental apprenticeship. And it's basically the idea that everything that's happened to you in life, gosh, whether you wanted it to or not, it has shaped you. And you can either own that or not. And um, I have always loved performance. I, I was in a lot of different bands throughout my you know, young adulthood, you know, teenage years through college. Um, I was in a lot of plays as a kid because I grew up in a loud household. So I learned how to project my voice and speak Mm -hmm. over everybody. And when you're in sixth grade and you can memorize words because your mom used to read you the dictionary on long road trips because apparently that was normal. (laughs) And and you grew up in a loud household. uh, All of a sudden, you're a good pick for a play where most kids don't know how to project their voice. And so I acted in all these plays. And so it turns out, you know, when, when I'm in my mid to late 20s and I start this writing thing and I realize, you know, you can make some money writing books, but you can also make a lot more money speaking. And I started doing speaking gigs and I was already, quote unquote, naturally good at it because I had all this previous experience. And I was like, oh, I'm good at this and I like this. I should do more of this. This is fun, too. Mm hmm. So I think it's just that, you know, doing these different things and looking for these uh, spark moments where you go, hey, I didn't even know that I was preparing for this, but this all, you know, makes sense and can can kind of fit into the portfolio. So I look at what I do as a body of work and I'm willing to try lots of different things and see how it fits into it. And The stuff that works, meaning I enjoy it, I'm good at it or I can get good at it and it's having some sort of impact on a other people, and that impact can be, hey, this this really helped me, or I'm willing to pay for this. Uh, but if there's some sort of impact, I consider adding it to the portfolio.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, I I think that a lot of times we think that we should just automatically sort of be good at something or automatically know. What our calling is, or what, you know, it's like if you just, if you never left your house and just, you know, sat on your couch all day and didn't experience these things, how are you ever gonna figure out what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, you know, what you're not good at, all of those things? And for some reason, and I don't know, I, this is how I feel. I feel like there's some, this blockage that we have where it's like, well, no, I should, I should just know what that thing is already. Right. And it's like, how does that even, that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's not,
1: I'm, it's not I'm a big. I'm, I'm a big fan of the trial and error method. And right. and it's not like, it sounds accidental. It's not accidental. I mean, you need to study what other people in your industry are doing. Uh, you need to steal. You need to borrow those ideas, rearrange them into something that looks like your style, and then find a way to share it. Publish mm-hmm. those ideas, share those songs, put your work out there. I mean, that's the work. That's the creative process, studying other people, Uh, You know, as a writer, I'm reading all the time. Uh, When I was, you know, writing really bad music for girls that kept dumping me in high school, (laughs) I was listening to a lot of music. Uh, And so I'm a big fan of input. You know, people say I'm not listening to, you know, other people because I don't want to be influenced. I'm like that. That's the process is you get influenced by the work that has come before you. You build on it some way. You're not just borrowing from it. You're building on it and then sharing your, your version of that thing. That's, Mm -hmm. that's good. That's how we progress culturally.
0: Yeah. And that's,
1: and that's the work. And you find that there's certain things that stick and resonate and there's an audience for And anytime there's an audience. um, There's going to be some way to make money off of that. If, if you can figure that part out.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. There was one thing that that you brought up earlier that I I wanted to we quickly touched on it, but I want to talk about it quickly again. Yeah. Okay. The the idea that of the starving artist and how that's a lie that we tell ourselves, and when you look at back in you know the Renaissance and Michelangelo was one of the one of the richest people around, right? And he I think he was yeah. like well, he was worth like equivalent it was like eighty million dollars or something like that.
1: Yeah, fifty uh, million dollars. Yeah,
0: fifty million dollars when he died. So he wasn't some he wasn't some pauper that was just you know painting. Um, how do you suggest people get out of that mindset? Is there a way that you suggest people change that belief system? Because I think if you, if you don't have the correct belief system and the right operating system in your brain, I think you're, you're doomed from the start. I agree with that.
1: I think, look, um, uh, is life unfair to some people, you know, have better breaks than others. Sure. Of course. Yep. Uh, welcome to planet earth and and being human. Uh, but all I need to know is, like, is this possible, right? Um, have other people, dumber than me, done this? <laughs> and if so, I've got hope. <laughs> and it really is just about mindset. You don't need the 99 ways that it's not going to work. You just need the one that will. And the head game is important. It's mm-hmm. important in everything. You know, I talk to uh, health coaches all the time, and I say, how important is, like, the mental aspect of losing weight? Because, I mean, you've got, you've got lots of things going on here, right? You've got um, – You've got chemistry, you've got you know, physiology, uh, you've got some genetics going on, you've also got habits, you know, you've got mm-hmm. exercise, eating, environment, um, there's a lot going on, right? And I asked a friend who's a health coach, I said, it's like, you know, let's like 50% mental and like 50%, you know, physical, right, and, and, and everything else. She goes, no, it's like 90% mental. All that mm-hmm. other stuff is just a, a product of how you think about yourself. And so, as human beings, we tend to find what we're looking for, right? It, it's this whole idea of confirmation bias. If you believe something, you're going to find a way to make that true. So, if you believe that you're a loser, nobody's going to date you, you tend to wear that badge of shame and that lack of confidence. And when you go walk up to the, you know, this guy or this girl or whoever that you're interested in, they can see that. They can feel that. And therefore, not, they're not interested in you and you begin to confirm this bias that you have, which is that you're a loser and nobody likes you.
0: Right. That self-fulfilling and, prophecy.
1: And if you think artists starve,
0: um, then
1: you're going to find opportunities to starve. And there's fascinating research of you know written about this in the book of, of how people who are you know um, who graduate in the arts are just as successful people who have you know sciences degrees. Um, there's lots of interesting you know data about more and more independent artists musicians. Um, writers and creatives making great livings. And so I wrote the book to just say, hey, here's the other side of the story. You know the story of the starving artist. Here's the story of the thriving artist. And here are stories of successful artists throughout time who have done this well. And here are stories of people who continue to do this really, really well. And at the end of the day, it's just up to you. Uh, but in the book, I, I call the starving artist story, the myth of the starving artist, And a myth is a story that we tell ourselves to help us make sense of reality, right? So every religion has a creation myth. Here's here's how we got here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and some myths are true, and some myths become true once we believe them, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, the story of the starving artist becomes true if you believe it. And the obverse of it, the other side of it, the story of the thriving artist that I can make a living doing this that also becomes true. A fascinating um, story about Michelangelo is he grew up, uh, he had a last name, his last name is Buonarroti which is rare in the Renaissance. And he grew up hearing a story from his, his relatives that they were a noble family that had lost favor somehow. And so they were like previously rich, you know, a few generations mm-hmm. ago. And when Michelangelo becomes an artist, which was not, uh, artists were not wealthy at the time. He was the first of many that would follow him. And uh, when he becomes an artist, he's thinking, I'm a Buonarati. I've got to do this differently. I've got to make money. I've got to make a lot of money doing this because I have to restore. He was the breadwinner for, for his family. I have to restore the family name to its prominence. There was a lot of pressure for him to do this. Mm-hmm. So he goes on to do this and he gets you know, the best patrons and he works for the popes and he makes 10 times what all the other artists are making. And, and later on in his life, he wrote a letter to one of his relatives and he said, I never kept a shop like many artists do. And he's saying that in a very pejorative sense. What he means is I wasn't wasn't a merchant. I was an artist. I was an aristocrat. He even dressed differently. And as a result, he became the richest artist of his time. And at that time, he was the richest artist who had ever lived. He really changed the way that we culturally think about artists. And what's Most fascinating about him is afterwards there are many who followed in his footsteps and being an artist after Michelangelo in the Renaissance was, you know, meant to be a member of high standing society. And it wasn't until like the 18, 1850s when we started thinking of artists as, you know, starving people. So what's interesting about all that is several hundred years later, historians agree that the Buonarrati family was never a noble family. They don't know how they got the surname, but it wasn't true. It right. wasn't true that he came from nobility and he was like a, you know, former rich kid who needed to restore his family to his prominent position in society. Mm-hmm. And yet it was the story that he heard growing up. And because he believed it, that he was a, an aristocrat, he became it. Right. So, and I, right. Think, I think that's a big part of all this. The, the, in the book, I demonstrate, look, like the opportunities are there. You've talked to enough people, Nick. We know enough people. Mm-hmm. That didn't just get lucky. If you want to succeed today as a creative person, there are more opportunities to do that now than have ever existed. Please don't tell me all this crap about the music industry. I, I know so many, it's changing, of course, things are always changing. Yes. But I know so many independent artists who are doing great because they've learned some simple lessons, principles that it turns out thriving artists, people who've always done well. Uh, have always known. And that's the whole point of the book.
0: Yeah. It, do you know Adam Braun, Pencils yes. of Promise? Uh huh. Yep. So Adam and his brother Scooter, uh, obviously, you know, Scooter's a huge talent manager, manages For sure. Justin yeah. Bieber and Kanye West, everything. And Adam Braun is a, uh, had that has Pencils, Pencils of Promise, very successful uh, nonprofit building schools. And I remember hearing Scooter talking about his dad, every time they went to bed, he would just say, The Brauns are, you're a Braun. So you're different. Yep. You're not better. You're just different. And his whole life, he thought that it was just like I'm different. Or both of them thought that, you know, like we're we're different, and have essentially excelled in pretty much everything that they've done. And it's just the mindset of of saying, you know, we're different. We're not we're yep. not better than anyone else. We're not, you know, nothing like that. We're just we're different. I thought it was a really powerful message that 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 their father was telling them at a really young age. Yeah, I love
1: that. I mean, there's that old proverb: "As a man thinketh, so is mm-hmm. he." Um, Napoleon Hill talks about it. You know, we become whatever we think about. Yeah. And Michelangelo is a great picture of that. And that was a very consistent um, trend amongst the hundreds of thriving artists that I personally talked to. Uh, this was a conscious choice. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just um, circumstance. Even in 2012, when all this stuff happened. I made the decision. I didn't expect these things to happen, but I changed the way I thought about myself and my role in the world and the work that I wanted to do. And the more I thought about that, um, the more a new story began to unfold. And so I believe that whatever you're looking for, you're going to find. And if you want something different than the story that you've been living, start telling yourself a new story.
0: hmm I just Will Smith just released a, a one of his YouTube videos, and at the end of it, he says, "If you can't win the world, if you can't win the war in your mind, you can never win the war in the outside." He's all about that. He's he's very inspiring. Yeah. He, yeah. He's um, yeah. He's fun. I love that dude. Plus, I'm yeah. From Philly, so we uh, there you go. <laughs> I'm always like, you know, he's sort of he's my guy. Uh, uh, yeah. So, where can people go if they if they want to find out more about you? I highly recommend that that people read your books for sure because you go deep into all of this stuff uh into in the the, um uh why did i I just lost track uh the art of work and um and
1: real artists don't starve good lord i've
0: read them both so yeah 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 art of work and real artists don't starve and uh they definitely the real artists don't starve for me was really really uh eye-opening and it was like, man, there's so many more people that need to to hear about this. So I recommend that people check out both of those books. Also, they can go to your website, GoinsWriter.com, G O I N S. And other than that, Jeff, thank yeah. you, man. I appreciate That's it. That's great. Yeah, no. Thank you, Nick. It
1: was a lot of fun and uh thanks for doing this. I, uh, I love
0: um I love drums. Uh <laughs> you don't have in to high say school that. we didn't have a drummer, <laughs> then we got me. to college at- <laughs> I don't believe <laughs> no, you, you don't, love <laughs> I don't get- believe you love drums. You even had a band without drummers, so
1: that's what I'm saying. Like, we, when we got to college and I played, I, like, probably the first time ever I played with the drummer, I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs>
0: this is what we've been missing. Uh, All right. no, it's great. Oh, yeah. oh, this is what caffeine tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. I get so much done now. I <laughs> know. Uh,
1: I'm going to change it to calf.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Cool. Likewise. All right, that was Jeff Goins. I recommend checking out The Art of Work. I recommend checking out Real Artists Don't Starve. And check out his writings at GoinsWriter.com. He also has a podcast as well that we talked about in here. So all of that stuff, all great stuff. And I will link up to all of his books and everything in the show notes as well. And other than that, the only thing I ask is please leave a rating or review. Head over to iTunes. You can do that. It'll take you a minute. It lets more people know about the podcast. It shows up higher in the search results. And all that stuff is good. So if you can do that, I would truly appreciate it. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace.